Welcome to Adaptations to Art, Politics and Life Itself. My name is Nico Heller. Adaptations offers cultural producers a space to reflect on the defining currents and crises of our time and to talk about how these currents and crises um, affect their practice, impact on their practice, and in some cases even motivate their practice. My first guest in this new series was Dougal Hein, who talked about regrowing a living culture two weeks ago. My guest today is Sean McAllister, one of the most distinctive documentary filmmakers working in uh, the UK today. Sean's speciality is the Middle East and making powerful human stories in conflict zones like Iraq, Syria and Yemen. According to Michael Moore, Sean is one of the most brave and powerful filmmakers today. His multi-award-winning films for the BBC and Channel 4 television have played all over the world, and his output includes Sundance Film Festival winning films The Liberance of Baghdad in 2004, Japan, A Story of Love and Hate in 2008, and The Reluctant Revolutionary. And of course, the Sheffield Prize jury winning A Syrian Love Story in 2015, which was screened in both the UK and European parliaments, was named by the Guardian newspaper in the UK as the third most important film of the year 2015, and of course earned uh, Sean McAllister a BAFTA nomination for Most Outstanding Debut. He's currently working on a sequel to his 2008 film, Japan, A Tale of Love and Hate. And I can see that Sean is already here, so do let me invite him in. Hello, hello, Sean. How are you? Good, good. How are you doing? I'm so glad, uh, Sean, that you could make it. You're a bit of a world traveler, aren't you? You're kind of, you've just recently come back from Japan, I believe. I've been following your adventures there on Facebook. Um, you're working on a kind of on a sequel to your latest, or so to, to uh, Japan, A Story of Love and Hate. How is that going? It's been difficult because of COVID, really, and because of, uh, well, actually because of cancer. So Naoki, uh, he had, uh, he, he got stage four cancer, quite serious for a while. So we'd actually got the film commissioned about three years ago. And um, he wanted to make this journey across Japan to try to look back on his life. Um, it was when he first got cancer and he was feeling kind of vulnerable and regret, remorseful, I suppose, about things in his life. He wanted to go and say sorry to a number of people he'd hurt, including the, the lady that featured in the previous film, who he's no longer with. And also to find the three-year-old son that he'd had from his first marriage, who he's never known. Um, so it, it just dawned, it felt like it was a film coming from him and he wanted to do so. And also it just gave a unique insight to Japan. Um, I just thought, yeah. And anyway, we got it commissioned three years ago, but you know, then COVID hit and then the BBC pulled out and now the NHK is still in. Now we're trying to raise more money. And finally we went to talk about it. So next I'm, I'm planning to go and make the first filming trip next, next month. Oh, brilliant. You know, this is so interesting because as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first time that you are actually doing a sequel. And and it's 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 interesting because the way you are engaging with your protagonists, it 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 feels very natural that you would kind of follow them, you know, through their life course, doesn't it? So it's interesting that that you that in this particular case you come back. Um now, uh, Sean, what, what I really um, want to talk to you today about is is 
if you like, your relationship to filmmaking. Um, you know, did it ever occur to you to do something else? So what is the, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's an issue because when I see, when I watch your films and when, you know, when I see you in action, I kind of feel that it's just an extension of your life. It doesn't actually really, and in fact, um, it seems to be a constant struggle to kind of to keep the technology out of it. So from what I understand, you work with small handheld cameras, you know, you're kind of, somebody said sort of like, sort of not a fly on the wall, but a fly in the soup, which I thought was a really interesting kind of way of putting it, because you really do get involved in people's lives at times in really awkward ways. Uh, and you kind of get the sense as an audience, as a kind of, as a, as, as a, almost like a, like a voyeuristic experience, uh, sort of following sort of Sean McAllister on his, on his travels uh, and as he engages with the world. Um, what's the difference between making a film and just, you know, living a life? I think it's um, trying to find um, a protagonist that can step into the experience, really. I think, you know, I think a lot about what it, what, what is a character and what is a story? And, and I've been doing, a actually just recently done a little tour of workshops talking to different people in different countries and from Malaysia to India to Japan and Singapore, talking to students about what it is we're looking for um, when we make a film. And of course, what is a good character? What is a good story? I think I'm looking for some, I think I'm looking for something inside myself when I'm looking for a character, but I'm also looking for, um, um, for a catalyst of change, I think, so that there's a character that's going to step into the experience and wants something to change, whether that's conscious or not. Usually it's not so conscious. Uh, you know, there's always something. They always say something. In the Syrian love story, Anna said to me early on, I just want my kids to have the chances in life like your, you, you have, like your kids have, which is a, a free life in the West. And I could see immediately there, well, here's a potential journey for him. I wonder if we can ever, you know, five years later, after all sorts of ups and downs, his family are in France. Um, you know, Samir in uh, Liberace of Baghdad um, said to me early on, you know, he, he's, he's always dreamed of two things. He wanted to be famous and he wanted to live in America. Well, he never really found fame with the piano, but I sensed early on we were in an interesting place at an interesting time and and you know the film festival circuit could offer him something Sundance in, in the end invited him to America uh, where he kind of found fame with the film and he found a life in America after the film so you know and Steve with the most recent film here in Hull he wanted to get out of the factory life he, he was he was looking at me as a mentor in a way because he'd seen my journey 20 or 30 years before when I was working in factories, went to a community centre and I picked up a video camera. I never went to the cinema. I never was a kind of obsessive. I find the idea of sitting in a dark room terribly boring. <laughs> I just want to go and meet people. I want to go into different places. When I do research for, for, for a film, it's about going the beauty of traveling so that thing about lifestyle and filmmaking is i think fundamentally i love traveling i love eating foreign food i love you know meeting interesting people i love asking questions and exploring different people's lives you know and i think that's the beauty of what filmmaking can bring and then in that journey if you can find a character somebody that can actually benefit from a process i think early on i discovered documentary takes were taking all the time from people and actually, you can give 
you can give a platform and you can give confidence. Often there's one trait with all the characters is they're all lacking, failed men lacking confidence. <laughs> and in a sense, I think the films give back something to them, especially actually may, might not even be in the filmmaking process. Often it's in the, the, the festival circuit where they can get the, the opportunity to travel with me and engage with the audience. And there's something about that that gives something back to them so that they are in a better place at the end of the film than they were at the beginning. It, it's interesting because I, 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 I mean, I think, I think this is an interesting big bit of your biography for, you know, for, for, for our listeners to know is, is that you, you, you had a very like a documentary filmmaker, which you see as a very highbrow kind of profession in the UK, working for the BBC and for Channel 4. It's not exactly a kind of working class pursuit, but you actually did start in a very, very different context from very, very different beginnings. I believe you dropped out of school at 16 um, and kind of pursued all kinds of menial jobs to make ends meet. And, and at some point, but you can tell this story better because I think what's in this story, which is really important, I think here to, to grasp is, is that this is how I kind of take it up is that sort of filmmaking or that way of expressing yourself has been a gift that you want to share with others. So it has somehow fundamentally changed your outlook on life. And in a way, that kind of um, gift, you know, is something that you that you want to pass on, if that's a, a good way of putting it. I think it's celebrating ordinary people, really, for who they are as well. And actually not just ordinary monosyllabic kind of representations of the working class. I think some some of the highbrow people I know in documentary, all, most of them have got PhDs and it kind of, you know, all of that kind of. They're quite kind of they're quite shocked to some somehow sometimes discover that working class people can think, that working class people can argue and discuss, and that have multifaceted kind of uh, they're not just the sort of stereotype that you often see on television. And I think that's what that's what I've tried to do by empowering finding voices that don't normally get don't normally get heard really. And 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 to, to give them a voice, really. Alistair, would you would you say that would you say that you're kind of discovering sort of working class heroes, or is that too sort of too cliched a way of sort of at looking at 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 at, at the kind of the work? Some from 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 that kind of specific angle, uh, looking at your work, because it is basically uplifting people up, isn't it? And you are very much looking at people that have a lot in common in some ways with your own kind of biography, maybe, or some people certainly you can relate to. And from what I understand from previous interviews, you very often would also go back to your home base to Hull and talk to your, to your old mates to sort of see how they would feel about you doing a particular film. I'm here now, actually, in Hull. Yeah, I mean, this is where it all, where I started. And most people, when they go off into London, probably settle. I've got, I live in London, but I always have a firm kind of base here. And if I've ever made a film in the UK, it's always been here. Why? Because nobody else does it here. Everybody else would do it in London. And you've got an insight to to the, to, to a city that other people don't probably have. In terms of travelling around the world, I think I'm looking for, yeah, I think it's almost like an international working class struggle. You know, more, most people, when they go to the, the conflict zones in Iraq or Syria at a time of kind of conflict are usually looking for the same old story. I'm kind of looking still for that character-driven documentary, exploring a whole number of different uh, emotional journeys, really, rather than just 
the topical story of the war. The war, in a sense, is something that, that brings the audience to, to look at the film. In fact, I remember showing the film in America and some people being a bit disappointed with Liberace of Baghdad because they said, well, it's actually a film about him. It's not really about the Iraq war, is it? And I said, exactly, you know. I remember, I remember, this must be the first film of yours that I saw, and I believe it was called The Minder. Is that possible? Is there a film that was called? And it was based in Iraq, if I remember correctly, before the fall of Saddam Hussein. And you were given a minder, literally. You basically were meant to kind of show you around and kind of keep an eye on you, you know, the way it would be in a kind of authoritarian regime. And in, in true Sean McAllister fashion, you developed a relationship with this guy. And that became the film. Talk a little bit about this, because I think there's a lot of insight into your way of working coming from that. Well, those guys were because off, off camera, I would go drinking with the minders. And they were my mates. So they were very much like the guys here that you go drinking with on a Friday, Saturday night. So when it came to opening the doors to get into places and things, things happening, that's, that's how it all worked, really. That's that's it's exactly the because we kind of we identified each other, we identified and got on as uh, in in that in, in a more down to earth way. All of the journalists were flying around doing all of the usual stories everywhere else. Um, for me, it was just I'd gone to Iraq twice before and I felt cheated by the news. I felt cheated by how I'd been how everything had been portrayed about my expectations about you know death to America and I met all of these people that just loved England and loved me loved loved our and then learned about more about our history in the in the neighborhood and the fact that you know from the 1920s onward onwards we'd um, kind of created this mess um and uh I felt cheated and wanted to sort of set the record straight really and found some warm loving funny uh, in, uh, and it was almost a comedy that film really was <laughs> totally, totally. I mean there must have been a point there must have been a point in this relationship uh, where the minder realised that actually it wasn't about him showing you sights or you know granting you access it was about him granting you access to him uh, and and you know and and so so can you kind of pinpoint how that transition from him being a, a tour guide to him becoming the, the central subject of the film, how that transition happened and how that changed your relationship? Well, there was one central character, if you remember, which was a temporary minder. And there's always, you see, you find somebody with a real story to tell. And he'd never, he made it clear from the beginning, he'd never joined the Bath Party. So he was never a part of the system. And if you're not a member of the Bath Party, you have to struggle. You know, you're not given all the benefits. So I found him and he was the one that was... He loved me. Why? Because he loved England. He loved Liverpool. He loved Kevin Keegan. He loved football. So he and, and he loved speaking English. So it was any opportunity to speak with me. It was just it was this complete crazy Anglophile, which was just fantastic for my audience. It was BBC BBC Two, 9pm at the time. That became actually the highest rating film on Iraq the BBC have ever transmitted. Um, the other character was a great contrast because he had he was very much the bath party, but he was a kind of effeminate ladies man. And I was just because he was playing the game, uh, I was just being a bit more devious with him, which was sort of kind of chasing him when he was meeting a different woman and just turning up and kind of. And also, I think it might be a scene when you remember I filmed him in the toilet having a pee. His driver said, quick, quick, come and grab him. Having, you know, so there was lots of things where. You wouldn't do these kind of things, especially with Saddam's minders. You know? hmm. 
I mean, it's so funny. It it's like you know, when, when you tell when you tell these stories, um, it sounds all both very easy and also kind of almost like a sort of a, a stroll in the park. But if I remember correctly, when you were filming in Syria, you were actually arrested, um, and it, it was a very close shave. Could you tell us what happened there? I mean, that was more of a struggle because I hadn't been properly commissioned so that film was a labor of love filmed over five years and the majority of the filming time was where I wasn't commissioned um I always keep myself safe in war zones by being close to my characters if you're under their under their under their arm uh, in their house in you know low key you're usually quite safe but because I was I didn't have any money for the budget for the commission I was going and doing some TV work and so Fridays was the protest day and I was actually picked up by the authorities when I was trying to make a 10 minute news film for Channel 4 which was just money to fund my my other film um, and it was just a bad time, bad luck but I, I exposed myself because I, I was trying to make 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 it make, make money to, to, to stay alive but um, to, to make the film but um you know, finally getting arrested and getting inside the system was also quite an interesting experience for me and the characters, because both characters were political prisoners. Both had spent long times in, uh, in prison and I was trying to understand their world. And also we were getting closer as a kind of family making this film. So when I was picked up and arrested, uh, not only did I see inside the finally see inside the horrors um, of the Syrian system, and the anguish and torture that they must have lived as political prisoners. But then all three of finally, like all the family had been arrested. So when I came back out, we were really all very tight as one unit. And I think that makes a very powerful film. You know, it was a much more complex story that because, um, you know, it started as a, as a love story where they were torn apart because of politics and then the revolution had happened and she was in prison and she came out of prison and and then they got to the free west but then everything started falling apart because they couldn't really see they had no kind of measure of anything anymore everything that they'd been kind of common to them had gone and so they couldn't see each other's even each other's love anymore and um you know each week he would call there'd be a different call from one of them to come over and be almost like a marriage guidance counselor with them because I was the only person who'd been on the journey you know the do-gooders in France hadn't really seen the world that they'd come from um, so I was trying to hold things together for them and in a way I was drawn in in a much more in more than I normally am in my films in that way and you know I suppose in a Hollywood narrative, it would end in a happy ending, but documentary, that's the beauty of documentary, really. We have to go with the reality. And, you know, they end up going their separate ways. Sadly. Well, there is something really interesting about, you know, the kind of, the the thing that you said earlier about the, the Iraqi who actually was really longing for a kind of Western life. Um, and in a way, kind of, saw you as a representation of that and a window into that life. 
Um, and so there's a clear, I mean, sort of from a kind of a structural perspective, there's a hierarchy in this. There's a kind of a, a positionality between the kind of privileged John McAllister who can fly in and fly out and the, the kind of the protagonist is caught up in the kind of situation on the ground and has no escape, no way out. Um, and on the other hand, the experience, of course, in Syria, where you had this shared experience, um, and as you said, that kind of really kind of brought you together as, as a unit and kind of made for a, a very sort of a very tight uh, a situation. Um, it's interesting the way this plays out. Um, when you when you go into a project, um, surely you must be aware that you that you do come from a position of privilege to start with. Um, and um, and, and so, so the question is, is what is your strategy here? Is it to sort of just basically be very transparent about it and um, sort of say, well, yeah, it's just how it is. I'm the filmmaker, I'm here to make a film, and then I go and I show it, and hopefully everybody benefits from it? Or are you actively kind of trying to level the playing field to kind of put yourself on their side? I mean, what's your strategy there? It's changing a little bit now because there's a sort of bias, not a bias, but there's a, there's a thing against me doing that kind of work, really. As you might know, the funding bodies are not really interested in grey-haired white, white men going into foreign territories to to do what I was doing. It's cultural appropriation, isn't it? Yeah, so that, that, that thing's really come up and it's almost made me a little bit paranoid to the point of going uh, there's a guy that i used to i mean his friend of a family uh, a sudanese guy who, who who for 10 years have been living under bashir in in, in khartoum very interesting story because he went to live in america and come back to live in in sudan but we talk about doing a film because he was a great he's a great character he's got it's kind of i always look for a one people that have got one foot in our world and one foot firmly in their world and so that they can somehow mediate the world and he's got because he's lived in America he speaks in he speaks in an American funny way he's got a sense of humor and he's but he's good he turned his back on America and went back to cartoon anyway the fall of Bashir finally happened and he, I got this call they said hey Sean finally you can come you can come and so I sort of flew over there um to hang out with him but you know in that time I never even told anybody I was there because I felt guilty to be in him like who am I to be here I'm not even allowed to be doing the, you know, so it's difficult really now, really. I don't know really. I mean, but then, you know, the cultural appropriation thing, the, the conclusion would be that I'd just make films here in, in Hull. But in Hull, they would say, well, who the hell are you? You've not lived here for 30 years. So where do I make films? And how do you make films? I always think that I make films because I find those, you know, it's like strangers in the night. We, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going around the world and I'm looking for... The, the, that kind of right connection to to explore something really i i i mean totally i mean this is of course something that's a very very interesting point you're touching on and i think a lot of people who have been working internationally working sort of cross-culturally uh I'll find that as a real challenge now um to, to to engage with this and and there is no i mean there is no universal answer of how to you know how to approach this but um but but my sense is is that what what is required is a sort of if you like a radical honesty, um, and, and and a directness in connection, um, so that um, you know if there are differences in privilege that they are not being hidden but that they are exposed. Um, it's it's like living with the pain of difference. 
rather than kind of brushing the difference under the carpet and kind of just looking for the similarities. And I think this is the, uh, the this, but this is of course, and of course, you're not just white, uh, you're also male and you're of a certain age. And that combines to quite a toxic kind of like cocktail now. Um, and of course, it does for, for, for every artist, a cultural producer, uh, you know, uh, of a certain age and skin color and, and so on and so forth. It's a difficult, it's a difficult thing. Um, and, um, and, and I think everyone has to find their own path. I kind of feel that, you know, I think, I think your work would stand up really quite well to scrutiny, to be honest, because um, this one aspect, which I thought was very interesting, is the, the kind of importance of language to you. Um, you know, the English language in particular. So uh, rather than kind of like engage with, you know, like protagonists or subjects that would speak Arabic or French or whatever, uh, you are consciously seeking out people you can talk to in your own mother tongue, presumably knowing that your audience back home in the UK will speak that language too. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that? Yeah, I mean, we did a little bit of filming with Nauki on this new film, and I have a translator, Cheng, who is working with me. He's uh, more than a translator. He's like an assistant uh, director, but he speaks Japanese. And so for the ease of Nauki to say things, we had some things in Japanese. And I then turned to Cheng and I said, how was it? And he said, well, he said everything, but it's rubbish. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said everything, but it's rubbish. It's just, it's just not, it's not Nauki. I said, so what's Nauki? He said, Nauki is the charm in which he struggles with those simple words to communicate to you. It's not what he says, it's how he says it. And if you just make it easy in Japanese, you've lost all the sense of that character that people loved with Nauki. He's gone, it's gone. And, and so, but having said that, Nauki and say, Yoshe, when they're having a discussion, or Amma and Ragda when they're having a fight, it's got to be in Arabic, it's got to be in Japanese. And I step back and I don't know what on earth is going on. And I actually love going to the edit and then getting stuff translated and seeing how it all develops into the story. But that one-to-one -one definitely has to be, for me, in English, um, partly because I don't speak the other language, but also more importantly, because my target audience are people here that work watch. I mean, like it or not, they ain't going to, less people are going to watch it in the foreign language. And I just don't think, because he's talking to them, he's talking to the my audience, my the people I'm trying to talk to. I'm not really aiming for a big highbrow intellectual audience when I make films. I'm talking, trying to talk to people on the street here. Like, for example, the Syria film, not the... Um, the Iraq, the Israeli film, the Palestinian, I made a film called Settlers in 2000 with a, a Jewish settler and an Arabic um, and a Palestinian who lived as neighbours. I shot with both of them for 13 months and they, they lived as neighbours. And then I cut the film together um, and it was characters. It was two really hardcore, interesting characters and how I related to them, but then the bigger picture. And when my mate here, Andy, who would never watch, well, he watches the news, but like a lot of people, it just goes over his head. He watched the film and went to Palestine. He went to Israel. He went into that world. And then the next time the news was on, I remember him calling me up saying, wow, I'd, uh, I just watched the news the other night and that, 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 that stuff about Palestine, da, 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 da. And suddenly he'd engaged in the issues around Palestine because a documentary through character had taken him to a place.
we assume when you watch these three-minute news blurts coming at coming at us like bullets every night that we're all engaging, that we're all there, and I don't think we all are. I think it's all you know. A lot of it's just floating over people's heads. I think, a lot of I people think... would say, "I loved your Iran film," and I, I'd say in the end, "Oh yeah, it was great." I've never been to Iran in my life, but I didn't. <laughs> if they want to think it's Iran, fine. <laughs> you know I mean? For me, it was more about the anyway. I, I think uh, uh, at some point you said something along the lines of is that one of your ambitions in making film uh, is to kind of to move people beyond their performance. It's as if it's as if you know we all put on a show and and, and that show is very, very culturally determined. So and we all sort of we all sort of pile on the cliches in our own kind of way. And in a way, I think one of the things that you're really a grandmaster at is to sort of peel that away, to peel that away, to peel that away, um, and, and until you get to a level where you really where it's like two human beings engaging, uh, almost sort of beyond or you know above sort of cultural concerns. Is that is that a fair statement? I think I like to get what people call interviews, or I call them conversations. I get to I like to get people thinking out loud. I like to get people reflecting for the. You can see them not sure where they're going. The words are coming out of their mouth, and you're getting this unique thought process based on a rapport that's coming alive, and 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 that's taking to a new level, a new place. It's a conversation of film. It's a journey into people, but definitely beyond beyond a performance. Also, there was a scene we were looking at in one of the workshops in, say, like the Syria film, which was a, a kitchen scene after a very a very painful argument between Amma and Ragda. And she can't find she can't find she can't find in it in it in it in herself to show him the love he needs. It's like role reversals also fascinate me. So when I'm casting, because I think when we make a documentary, we cast in the same way that a fiction filmmaker would cast. You look for the elements that are going to make the film interesting. I love the idea of role reversals in the Japan film. He's the house husband, unheard of in Japan. And here in, in, in Syria, you've got a hardcore Palestinian freedom fighter who is sat looking for love from his hardcore Pal um, Syrian freedom fighter wife. Um, but there was a scene where they were fighting at each other in the kitchen. And in the edit, we removed, in the end, I was just, just analysing the scene, we removed all of the dialogue to this visual where she's cooking, there's a scene of no talking, and she turns the pan. And he, he, he reaches over just to help her turn the pan as she stirs the dish. And she then turns her back on him and walks out. And he just sits there like a sad little puppy. And the camera's kind of close on him. And it's edited in a way to kind of convey something that went on before and something that's going to go on after. And in that, you're looking at trying to kind of, you know, but what's also interesting in something like that is you've got a character who is now educated enough into the film to go with the film. For example, in the Arab world, that Arabic man might say, There's no way I can be conveyed like that. I'm going to look like a loser in my, you know, but he's big enough to actually stand by the film and, you know what I mean? So they've gone beyond the performance and they've gone with the reality of who they are in a way. They're not in any pretense and they're not, you know, he he could have argued, actually, that was a wrong scene. I was right in that situation, but he kind of is big enough to kind of go with the creative process somehow. So in a sense, the journey is also an education for them 
to 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 build them up because I think at the end of the day, anybody in my film, I mean, I'd hate to be in one of my own films <laughs> because anybody in my film has to be quite part, strong to take that nakedness. No, 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 absolutely. But it's you know, it, it, it it's a sort of um, it's a kind, it's it, it's a it's a nakedness that is. It, it, there's different kinds of nakednesses, isn't there? There's a sort of a, a nakedness which is a sort of highly individualistic, which you know, which is also very private, which is just you. But there is a sort of a nakedness which kind of exposes a universal truth as well, isn't there? And, and which is a different kind, and it, it, it sort of it sustains the dignity uh, of the subject in the way a kind of a private nakedness may not. And I think this is a really important distinction. I'm sure that you are making when when you are sort of like going through your footage and you know deciding whether to include or not to include something in a film. The red line, and I always say to the participants, please let me film everything, and I can decide the red line in the edit. Where I remember a little old lady saying about the Syria film in one of the Q and A's, do you think sometimes you can get too close in making a film? And the indication of the question was that that it was, and I said, well, hopefully it feels too close and too raw, but not too much, because I think it shouldn't be always so comfortable for the audience. I think you put the audience into a comfortable place, an enjoyable place, a kind of roller coaster, but then those moments like a roller coaster can get a bit scary. Well, there would be a point, wouldn't there, where it would turn into some form of pornography, if you like. And of course, that is a really important line that, from what I can see, you've always stayed well away from. So, you know, you're not this kind of film director who would kind of, you know, set out to expose people's real inner selves. It is very much in the cause of, of a story. Uh, and, and and of course, as you said this before as well, the 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 ultimate objective of course also is is to build your subjects your protagonists up you know they, they, they come out of this story stronger and i think again that is a really that's almost like a sort of a, a prerequisite for allowing somebody to get that close to you sort of to have that trust in you as the storyteller that you will not take advantage of that dignity is big isn't it i mean it's just dignity and showing people to be you know I think the other thing that she's humanizing, isn't it? I mean, I think some scenes, the thing is that some scenes would not be necessarily representative because if you let people, if you convince people to let you film everything, your responsibility is greater because you film some stuff that in the wrong hands could make good sensational scenes. But if it doesn't represent the the, the greater picture because your responsibility is to the, I think my responsibility is to the characters and to the truth of the experience that I've been on. The editor's responsibility is to re-go on, to re-journey my journey of nine months through selected sequences that I've highlighted for the editor to look at and to re, to re, to, to, to re, recreate that journey. There, there is a real element, and this is interesting, and you, you've hinted on that before, um, in the way you sort of say that you're casting, you know, your characters and you're constructing your narrative. So although it's a documentary idiom, um, it is a very much also social drama, isn't it? And some people call it a kitchen sink drama. Uh, could you talk it? Because I think um, within this whole genre of social drama, of course, it's quite a sort of a highly ideologically charged field. Um, you know, because of course, it, you know, we can look down on it, we can look up to it, we can look at it with disgust. 
you know, they're, they're kind of the deserving and the undeserving poor. We know all the different ways of talking about social drama and your take on it is quite dignified. Could you talk a little bit about your understanding of what kind of social drama you're interested in? Well, I just know what I'm not interested in. I, and, and and I remember the stuff I used to see on tele, British television here where they would make a film about poverty. And one of the first sequences would be to get the poor people in the film to take them into the kitchen and open the kitchen cupboards and say, how much, show us how much food you haven't got. You know, and I just think actually, go and do that in the rich neighborhoods and show us how much food you have got. <laughs> You know, the kind of questions you ask poor people, you would never dare ask rich people. It's just awful. It's exploitative. It's rude. It's completely degrading. It's but I just think that's that that's because people from one class are making films about the other class. And what you're never really getting, and what I've always kind of wanted to do here, is to try to empower people from this class to make films about themselves and their class. But you don't have commissioning editors that are working class. You don't have anybody in television that talks and thinks like you. So you're always the imposter. You're always, even after 30 years, I'll go in the BBC and I know, I feel I feel like this. I'm, I'm in a strange alien place. I mean, I'm sure I'm not alone. But the idea that, you know, I don't know how you break that, really. I always had the idea of making a film, starting a film school on a council estate and having six, finding six people, six kids to make six films and making a feature documentary called The Film School on the Council Estate. <laughs> oh, that'd be brilliant. That'd be brilliant. Yeah. Is, is, is that something that you would actually contemplate? Something that you would actually do? I talked to the, I talked to the BBC about it. Do you know what I did? Um, six months ago, uh, after the Sheffield Dockfest, I bumped into a commissioning editor at Channel 4 who I have kind of a connection with. And uh, she said, oh, send me that serial film again or whatever. And she's, so, and she's in charge of international. I sent her the same idea, but I said, how, how about before it explodes in, in the Middle East, in Palestine? What about doing a film school in Ramallah where we get six film filmmakers and we make a film about the film school, but the characters are the six filmmakers and we're looking at the obstacles they face in telling their stories. And the great thing about this proposal is it's going to be a six months before it all blows up in um, in Israel. Hmm. Guess what? Guess what? She didn't answer. Yeah, of course not. <laughs> It's 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 too yeah it's it's too risky, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I don't know if it's too risky or if it's just now. Now, probably now it's all blown up. There was somebody writing to me saying, "Are you going to go to the Middle East?" And I'm like, "Well, no. Why? I'm not chasing war. I would have been in the Middle East before. I wanted to make a film in Ramallah for years. I wanted to make a film in Gaza, but Nick Fraser would never never send me." In fact, somebody wrote to me recently and said, I'm teaching documentary in Tokyo. Can you recommend a good Gaza documentary? And I said, funnily enough, I can't. But I've always wanted to make one. You know, and that would be something that would be character driven that would show you more than war. Now everybody will be there just filming the usual. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Um, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, when, 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 when you know, um, I think what, I think that kind of, of course, it would be a still a hard sell. You know, that's no question. At the moment, I think it's so polarized, the whole Israel-Palestine thing, that it would be a very hard sell. And nobody really wants to touch this right now. But um, 
but 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 I think if there was a way of approaching this in a kind of a dignified and if you like a sort of a it's never value free, but in a sort of a non-ideological way, it would be through that human lens, you know, because that would give you, it would anchor the project in a way that I think very few other approaches could. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, when you think about the the, the relationship between you and your and and and, and your subjects, and and the the way you're kind of portraying them, the character profiles that emerge from that. Um, they are in stark contrast to the kind of you know the Facebook profiles, the self-characterizations of the vast majority of you know young people, and actually not just young people, um, you know, across the sort of certainly across the industrialized world, and anybody with access to Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and all these kinds of media. Um, it's interesting the way you, your approach is so fundamentally different. That my, my sense is, is that in a way, it, it's probably more needed now than ever before. Um, do, do you at all reflect on your way of working within this greater kind of, in this wider political context, or you, do you prefer to just to stick to what you do? Or do you ever ask yourself, you know, what is the role and the purpose of my films today? Um, is, is that a kind of thing that you, you know, what is my my purpose as a filmmaker in today's society? What should I be doing? What should filmmakers of my, you know, standing be doing to make the world a better place or, or else? Well, I've not worked for five years and I've been getting rejections for the last five years. Uh, and I don't know whether that's the white, male, white, grey-haired old man syndrome um, or the fact that I'm choosing to try and make international stories. So I did have the BBC on board with the Japan one. They pulled out during COVID. I've also been trying to make a follow-up film in Yemen for five, six years, where Case, the character, has been doing most of the filming as the Saudi attacks of, in fact, he instigated that. So he started sending me videos of the Saudi attacks. And, uh, you know, it's that it's that that draws me in. It's it's somebody pulling you in saying, hey, we've got to tell the world this story. And how can I engage with them and help them? But I've got to tell you, I don't know how much, you know, I don't know, really. I, I think you're also in making films. You're also reliant on connections with commissioning editors and when they move on and the fresh blood come in and you end up like a 55 year old 57 year old old man and you've got younger blood coming in the new commissioning editors are not so interested in you and I suspect people like a Werner Herzog can still manage to do it because they've got this big name big pull but I mean to be honest I knew his producer and some of the way he got his films commissioned were just really ad hoc. It wasn't like there was a huge, big bag of money waiting to commission him all the time. People just imagine that, but he was prolific because he just loved getting stuff done and finding different ways to do it. Maybe that's what I should do. But the problem was, the problem is, I suppose my two interests have been abroad. I spent a long time trying to raise funds for them. Maybe I should think about something back here. I've been trying to explore a fiction-based thing based in in, in, in my city as well, um, which is which, which which is a sort of slight departure. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know I mean, what, what my role is anymore. I just feel like that, that maybe the times are changing and I feel a bit jaded by the sort of diversity police. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you, you, you're, you're not the only one there. Absolutely not the only one. Without, uh, without whinging too much and sounding like a terrible, 
you know, because that's there's nothing worse than a grey-haired, middle-aged man whinging. No, I mean, what I mean, it, it is a, it's entirely, uh, you know, it, it is a problem, and and I think, of course, what we may well see over the next couple of years is the pendulum swimming, swim, 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 swinging, you know, in the opposite direction, but in a very bad way, you know, so that a kind of a deterioration, kind of nationalist, supremacist, kind of like. Thing gains much more currency, and but this is of course not what you want, not what I want. But I think there is a danger that that this could just basically sort of you know backfire in 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 many ways that wouldn't be beneficial to anyone. But I mean, I think one thing that one kind of positive, and you know, if, if you want to be positive about it, uh, sort of comes out of it for me. And this is of course the, the problem you're describing is one that I think anybody who is kind of trying to make any form of art or sort of cultural, you know, uh, thing that isn't market driven, um, you know, faces. And so the question is, is how, and I think, um, and this is why I like this idea of making a film on a council estate and, and all this kind of thing, because I think maybe what we have to do, uh, Sean, is to retreat a little bit. Uh, you know, sort of like sort of uh, kind of, you know, sort of develop strategies that allow us to do things with little or no money, you know, like the way sort of bootstrapping stuff, the way you have done your Syrian love story and other things. Uh, I know this is yeah. a very, very tough call and it's not a nice place to be, but I think the way our times are, the direction of you know, uh, the direction of travel here at the moment, I think, uh, suggests that maybe this is what we have to do more and more, at least for some time. I think so. I, mean, I think because the one good thing is that I think if those films are made, that they still will be showcased at festivals like Hitler and Sheffield Dogfest and CPH Docs, and, and they will stand and be seen by the greater industry as a sort of testament to, you know, what documentaries was all is always about, which is the com the commitment and belief of the filmmaker that isn't going to be defined by the scheduling or by the commissioning process or by the budgets or by kind of these decision makers, they're kind of headless chickens uh, in television that are protecting six figure salaries that yeah. live in a different atmosphere to the rest of us, completely polarized kind of world the haves and have nots of of cat of the capitalist world exist in television more than ever <laughs> it, it, it does it does yes absolutely and in fact television is probably kind of on its last leg in in that respect because of course it is increasingly being i mean like ad revenue has been eroded massively and this and then and the other and people are using streaming services and they may well you know at some point be ways in which it'll be much easier to see a Sean McAllister film uh, and there may be an audience build up, you know, like far away from the kind of the, the, the mainstream. But um, one last question, and this is, I, I think, which is quite uh, interesting is, and I've always wondered about this, it requires a huge amount of compassion uh, and empathy uh, to make the kinds of films you have made, Sean. Um, and, um, and one of the questions I ask myself, how can you bring to bear that level of empathy without actually liking your protagonist. Let me turn this round the other way. Uh, could you imagine making a film about someone you don't ultimately fall in love with or somehow become very close and appreciative of? I can't, no, but it doesn't mean that um, those films shouldn't be made, you know. I, I, I kind of somehow 
I can't think of any, but I think there's certain people make films about people that they don't connect with or particularly like, and they're, they're watchable. In fact, horrible people are quite watchable, aren't they? I mean, if you oh, think of... Werner right Herzog one, would be an example, Sean. Werner Herzog would be an example, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, he's... Um, but he would probably... And I'm not sure. He only came to one of my uh, Liberace Baghdad. I met him at Sundance. He was very, very positive and, um, and complimentary, but I think he was just being nice. I know that he despises the cinema verite tradition and of which I kind of... I think I use that as a foundation to all my work. And I think, I think my kind of connection and empathy... I think my whole motivation to filmmaking is completely, probably completely different really. But I think everybody has their own sort of thing, don't they? I make films, I make friends in my journey in life and my filmmaking is an extension of that, really, and documenting. I haven't made that many, but then maybe I don't have that many friends. <laughs> you know, um, I kind of, um, that's my thing. I, I, I only want to, I kind of care passion. Then that's my skill, really. My skill isn't to make a kind of crafted documentary. Some people have come to me and offered me a kind of crafted story or a true crime thing. I'm like, you know, just because I make documentaries the way I make them, it's a completely different language. I would be a disaster at that <laughs> I'm not one of those people, you know. Whereas I think Werner Herzog seems to have mastered many different techniques, but could he get really close to somebody in the same way that I do? I don't know if that's his skill or his interest. I don't, know, think, it's a, I, I think, he, I don't think it's his interest, actually. I think he's way too narcissistic for that. But, um, but, but, uh, but he's a good filmmaker. This is the thing, you know. The of God. This is the thing. I mean, I, honestly, I do love his films. Some of them are just absolutely genius. I kind of think he's a horrible guy, a despicable guy. I mean, he's he's actually it's funny actually how despicable he is. But that's a, I mean, you know, you know, some of the films people died on his set because he wanted to see them sweat. You know, I mean, you've got to have that kind of ego to kind of put people through, you know, through the kind of you know the the works just to get what you want. But but anyway, that that's Herzog and. Um, but, <laughs> be your next next week's guest. <laughs> but 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 honestly, Sean, is there any project that you could say right now that's the project you still haven't done, the project that you really still want to do? Not really. I mean, there's uh, projects I've filmed, like um, I've filmed for the last ten to twelve years, um, some footage here in this house with my parents as they face the end of their life. And um, I'm currently going through a lot of that material. They've both died now, but it's a story for me about about the north. It's a story about about parents, about about coming back and and, and identify and trying to connect with your mum and dad before they pass on, knowing that they're going to pass on, but without any great thing to say, without any great mission. And I think the backdrop of it for me is a story looking at the north, looking at my father's working class, a grand old city that was one of the big cities called Hull, to my city, which is a shit old city with no jobs, with Brexit, with immigration on the on the rise, with a right wing on the rise, with 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 no hope on the rise. Um, you know, where 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 are we going? What is Britain? So I've got this idea of making a film about all of those things because it was like again, it's a very personal, intimate film with mum and dad and me and my mini and driving around and eating fish and chips and looking out at sea and the smallness of Britain and the smallness of life here. But when these magnificently big things were happening, like Brexit, and my father was saying, you know, it, my father was saying, if only these idiots 
who'd voted Brexit could remember how difficult it was in 1974 to get into the European Union. They're so quick at voting to get out because they think if they vote to get out, all the immigrants will leave the city. And of course, if they voted to get out, this city voted 78%. And we've had more immigrants arrive as a result than, than before. So it's a great present for everybody. But that's good. It's very good, actually, because they're doing all of the jobs here. Yes. Anyway, so that, that's, 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 that's something I've filmed and I've got all of this 12 years of material. So um, that, that sounds might like be a some... really interesting project to get your teeth into. And it's actually probably the film that I really would like to see most. Uh, absolutely. That, and it, it, it feels almost like sort of a, a thing that you have to do. It's a sort of a, uh, you're kind of almost duty bound to, to do that. Is there any, and so just to finish off this really very, very, very interesting conversation with you, Sean, um, is, is there any any advice or anything that you would say to sort of budding documentary filmmakers in the UK today, how to approach their craft and how to how to go about making their first or maybe, you know, their first follow on film? Well, I began doing these workshops, I trying to sort of instill what, what, what it was in me, really. And it's finding the passion, finding the passion that will, because I think you can't pretend and I think people see the passion. If you're in front of a commissioning editor, they're not they're not really commissioning the story, they're commissioning you. And so they're looking for something in you. And um, that is conveyed when people feel, and often when you watch a film as well, you feel like you're in some capable hands. You know, within the first five minutes of watching a documentary, you can feel whether somebody's confidently taking you somewhere or it's a little bit like that. And you're thinking, oh my God, where is this going to go? You know, and so I think it's about, I think people should take the time to find the voice. I think people, if they've got the space, which is film school, they should use it to make mistakes. And only through making mistakes can you learn and never ever give up making mistakes and never give up learning, really. I'm, I'm all the time trying to do that constantly. I never really take it for granted that I know how to make a film. Even like now, it's, it's still like you're still fraught with the first, like it's making you're making your first ever film. And I think that brings brings to it something special, something I think that that people should find themselves in the films. Don't try to emulate your hero. Don't try to be who you love. Try to be who you are and try to discover who you are and those skills that you that, that make you you. You know, it's interesting. I think part of your technique as, as a filmmaker probably has to do with sort of finding bits of yourself in others. It's it's a sort mm. of a reflexive way. And it's actually a really, as a practice, I think it's a really interesting practice because it it kind of, it has sort of a, a guiding dynamic to it, doesn't it? Because it, it, it it's a kind of a sort of a, it's not so much that you're searching, but it's a kind of like, you know, the, the old kind of Picasso cliche that you're finding, you know, like uh, yourself in it. Um, and, and and I think that is a really like the writer is writing about lived experience. So you're trying to connect with you know you're not you're not out of your depth. You're you're working within your own lived experience. That's what you should be doing. I think exploring your own identity in other people often. And, and you you know you have a real advantage there over those PhDs, I should say, because of course you know that kind of knowledge. Um, you know, that kind of perspective, be it historical or scientific or whatever, can actually get in the way, can't it? 
And and so, so, so in a way, I think if you do have this kind of academic background that you bring to it, you almost have to unlearn that first before you can start making real films. The funny, the funny thing about that was that, I mean, I've got a metalwork, a CSE grade two in metalwork, which isn't even an O level. And um, many years later in 2017, Hull, had its uh, city of culture, the UK city of culture, and they asked me to be the opening. I, I was the creative director for the opening, which was hugely successful, actually. It had a footfall, which was four or five times more than they imagined. And actually, it was largely to do with the nature of the projected films. Why? Because I think it talked to ordinary people. And after the first night, people came back and said, you know, in fact, my mother said, that's not art, that's amazing. <laughs> You know, and I think that's how ordinary ordinary people were suddenly saying, actually, we're 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 really engaged with that. But the funny thing about them, which is also documented in my mum in my my journeys with my mum film, um, a year after that, I got a letter from Hull University that came through the post, which I was opening on camera with my mother from the uh, dean of the university saying the vice chancellor of the university would like to bestow upon you a, do a, a doctorate for your contribution. So. I became a PhD, an honorary PhD doctor. <laughs> you richly deserve it, Sean. You richly no, deserve it. Without doing any of the hard work, <laughs> apart from the opening show. <laughs> Sean, thank you very, very much. This has been really, really, uh, you know, a very, you know, a, and, and you know what the thing is, I, I was thinking about this, you know, the last time, and I actually saw you in, you know, face to face, must be at least 20 years ago. And it's interesting, and I sort of looked at some old pictures of you, like, you know, like uh, recently, you know, when you still had brown hair and uh, <laughs> and more hair. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and it's so interesting, and I'm so glad that we have reconnected because, uh, I mean, this was a kind of a meandering kind of conversation we've had, but I do feel a very strong connection to you and to your work. And I feel really privileged that, that you came on to annotations um, at this very early stage, when it's an unproven concept, you know, when you know, when we're still kind of struggling to get good people onto the program, it's been a real privilege to have you, Sean. And personally, for me, it's been really, really nice to catch up with you. And I hope that if you, you know, if you ever pass through Berlin, uh, do get in touch. And of course, next time I am in London, I will make a point of sort of like, you know, you know, giving you a call beforehand, so maybe we can meet up for a drink or something. Definitely. I've enjoyed it. Really lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you ever so much. Have a good day. And I wish you best of luck with, um, you know, your kind of uh, your sequel on, on the Japan story and hopefully many more to follow after that. Sean, thank you ever so much. Have a good day. Yeah. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye bye.